I'm Tom Powers. Today's guest on Pure Nonfiction is Brett Morgan, the director of Jane, about the chimpanzee researcher Jane Goodall. Brett admits that he wasn't an obvious choice for the job. If you ask me to go see a Jane Goodall doc, I go, A, haven't I seen that at some point? B, how saccharine can you be? And like, no. Last week, his film Jane won the Critics' Choice Best Documentary Award and was nominated for the Cinema Eye Honors. We'll talk to Brett Morgan about the making of Jane coming up after this message. Doc NYC, America's largest documentary festival, starts this week. On our last episode, we told you about films at the festival. Now I want to speak for a moment about the eight-day conference for professionals called Doc NYC Pro. Each day has a different theme, with leading industry figures and filmmakers sharing insights on the art and business of documentary. It all starts on Thursday, November 9th, with the State of Documentary Day. Guests include funders from the Ford Foundation, Left Foundation, and sales agent Josh Braun. Friday, November 10th, is Shortlist Day, when leading filmmakers like Brett Morgan, Errol Morris, and Laura Poitras discuss their new films chosen for the Doc NYC shortlist. The weekend of November 11th and 12th is devoted to panels on mastering your craft with leading documentary editors and cinematographers. The weekdays of November 13th to 16th focus on pitching, producing, financing, and legal issues. Throughout the conference, you'll hear from esteemed speakers, including the editor of OJ Made in America, the producer of Life Animated, the head of the Sundance Institute documentary program, and dozens more. So don't miss out. You can buy a Doc NYC Pro Pass for all eight days, or a four-day pass for the first half or second half of the conference, or a single-day pass. For more information, go to docnyc.net. Brent Morgan started out his career with two attention-grabbing films that he directed with Nanette Burstein. She was on our podcast last year on episode 22. Their first collaboration in 1999 was On the Ropes, about three young boxers in Brooklyn that was nominated for an Academy Award. Their follow-up in 2002 was The Kid Stays in the Picture, based on the autobiography of Maverick Hollywood producer Robert Evans. My first independent production had its origins over a steak dinner with Bob Town. Town unraveled an original story he was writing. It's about how Los Angeles became a boomtown, Evans. Incest and water. It's set in the 30s. Second-rate Seamus gets 86 by a mysterious socialite. I'm writing it for Nicholson. I had met Nicholson a few years back and we'd become great pals. Sounds perfect for Irish. What's it called? Chinatown. Chinatown? You mean it takes place in Chinatown? No, no, no. It's, Chinatown is a, a state of mind. 
I got it. <laughs> I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. After the kid stays in the picture, Nanette and Brett moved on to separate solo careers. Brett made Chicago 10, about the radicals who clashed with police at the 1968 Democratic Convention and were later put on trial. Each of those three films had a distinct style. On the Ropes was observational, The Kid Stays in the Picture made inventive use of still images, and Chicago 10 employed full animation to evoke the past. Brett went on to make a documentary for the Rolling Stones' 50th anniversary called Crossfire Hurricane, and a film about Nirvana band leader Kurt Cobain called Montage of Heck. The Cobain film mixed rare archival with animation and new interviews with Cobain's inner circle, including his wife, Courtney Love. He was super cute, but he carried himself like someone who didn't know that. And that was part of the charm. He didn't know that he was a better looking guy than Brad Pitt. We got on like a house on fucking fire. One caveat, I had already done heroin, beat the thing, had a rule, I loved it still, but I didn't have a fantasy that he had. He had a fantasy. His fantasy was, I'm gonna get to $3 million and then I'm gonna be a junkie. That was his, those are his words. Nothing in that history points to Brett making a film about Jane Goodall. In fact, it wasn't his idea. The film draws upon a vast archive of 16 millimeter color footage from the 1960s. Back then, Jane Goodall was in her 20s, newly arrived from England to Tanzania, where she started her groundbreaking study of chimpanzees. National Geographic sent cameraman Hugo Van Lawick to film her, and they fell in love. Some of Van Lawick's footage was used in a TV documentary at the time, but over 100 hours went into storage and remained unseen for decades. National Geographic found it and sought out Brett Morgan for his innovative use of archival footage. Brett enlisted composer Philip Glass for a lush score. The results are like a romantic epic. The first evening, Hugo spent telling me about the films that he'd made in his childhood and how he'd always wanted to photograph animals. So we had a lot in common. I think it was pretty obvious to me right from the start that I was a subject of interest as well as the chimps. In September, I hosted the world premiere of Jane at the Toronto International Film Festival. Two days later, Brett and I sat down with a live audience at TIFF Doc Conference. I started by asking how he became attached to the project. Last February, I received a call um, from National Geographic saying they wanted to, they had just seen Kurt and were fans of the montage of Hack and wanted uh, to talk to me about doing a film. February about 2016. 2016, yeah. yeah. And, uh, 15, 2015. Okay. And they wanted to do a film about Jane Goodall. And I was just sort of, <laughs> literally was like the wrong number um, because I'd just done Kurt and Bob Evans and the Rolling Stones and it just <laughs> didn't seem like a natural flow. Um, and, um, but I got on the call and they eventually sent me some footage and, um, 
one of the things they sent me was a, 19, a film from 1965 called Miss Goodall and the Chimpanzees, which was the second National Geographic film um, that Orson Welles narrated. And it's one of the most amazing um, documents of its time, but it's very much a, you know, they made documentaries in a very different style and tradition back then, so Orson's narrating every action that happens. Observation from the mountain has its rewards, and soon Jane has a little hut built where she keeps her blankets and coffee and a few tins of food. It makes it possible for her to enjoy a noontime snack, but more importantly, now she can stay on the mountain for long periods, studying the chimps without interruption. Jane looks left, Jane looks right, and um, it seemed that uh, with 140 hours that there is a possibility to do something a little more immersive and, and to use the technologies that we have available to us today, both in color grading and in um, audio construction, to invite the audience to be on that magical journey with Jane um, back in 1960. And uh, so National Geographic had the keys to the archive that had this 140 hours stored. But as I understand it, it was not you know, easy to make your way through this 140 hours. Can you talk about that challenge? Yeah, there was uh, actually uh, uh, someone, uh, something in the Hollywood Report the other day where he said, um, not geographic, Brett Morgan, 140 hours. It, it was any documentarian's dream. And if it was that, it would have been a total dream. I thought it was a dream. <laughs> I thought they, they, they said, um, we're sending you these drives. They've already been digitized. You could bring your editor in, go to work tomorrow. And I'm like, we're going to get this film done in nine months. Like, this is going to be a breeze. And in fact, we're aiming for last year's New York Film Festival. <laughs> totally missed it by a year. And, uh, and we started screening the footage. And it became clear instantly that what we had received were 140 hours worth of shots. There were no two consecutive shots that originated from the same camera reel. So it was completely scrambled. The dream was a nightmare. The dream was a nightmare. <laughs> and it's all MOS on top of that. And there's a lot of chimpanzees, and they no don't sound, have name so tags. No sound exists for any of this. No, uh, yeah. no. And, um, and I'm really bad with face, facial and um, name recognition with, with my friends. And so having to, um, to make sense of this footage was, was bloody hell. And so Because we should be clear here, the chimpanzees that she was working with really became her friends and, uh, and family. So it, it's not like... It, it matters that you can't tell who the chimpanzees are. Correct, and, and her study was mainly focused on one family of chimpanzees, and, um, and so for the film project, those were the ones that were relevant and important. However, there were 160 chimpanzees who lived on the Gombe forest, and there's whoever wanted to come into play came into play. So, um, so yeah, just to be able to screen the footage became an epic epic tale. We ended up having to, we, we built a, a 7-1 mix stage at our office and we brought in a sound editor before we brought in picture editor two years ago. Um, and we, what we did was we acquired through the Jane Goodall Institute 55 years worth of audio recordings um, and then began the inevitable task of, uh, <laughs> of trying to create synchronized chimp sounds for, for the film. Uh, and how close were you getting? I mean, when you, were, when you had access to these audio recordings, did you have audio recordings of specific chimpanzees that matched the chimps in the film? We didn't have, like, Flo's voice 
per okay. se, but um, they were, the film went, was after we did our work, the technical people came through and were like, the thing is like totally on spot, on point. I had this, you know, financially, to hire a sound editor for two years is like, you, it's really- It's money. It's money. So I got really lucky and hired some kid who just graduated from SC and paid him really nothing. But it was like <laughs> his first job and he had this fancy 7-1 room and he was stoked and sat in there for two years. And, <laughs> and you just put food in under the door? Slipped <laughs> <laughs> some bananas. And then, and then I remember when we hired, the, the film was, we brought in the sound designer who, who recently just did Beauty and the Beast and he's a big Hollywood guy. And I was assuming he was gonna sort of redo all the stuff. And once he saw all the things, he's like, you know, I think we should keep Josh on the project and maybe I'll just give him all the chimp vocalizations. <laughs> so getting access to Jane Goodall herself uh, is uh, not that easy a thing. She's a busy woman. I'm told she spends 300 days a year on the road carrying out the causes of her Jane Goodall uh, Institute. And maybe you know, this film wasn't as big a deal to her as it was to you. Um, can you talk about what that interaction was like getting her on board of the project? I think anyone here who makes films knows that it's a lot easier to make a film. Any film is a collaboration between the subject and the filmmaker. And if you don't have that collaboration, it's just an uphill battle, unless you're Nick Broomfield, in which case <laughs> right. it's a blessing. And, um, uh, but the... Um, Jane, you know, Jane had no interest in having this film made. There was she's, no, she's written her memoirs. She's 12 she's, books. Yeah. She's done 12 books. There have been films going back to 1965. Um, she's on the lecture circuit 300 days a year. So when the call came from our production to arrange for an interview, they really were treating us like an ENG crew, mm -hmm. electric news gathering, you know. And like, you know, well, you, you know, you can, you can film her. She's going to be at this conference. You can have a couple minutes backstage. <laughs> so they, and we're like, we need to like, we're going to build a set. <laughs> we're going to, you know, it's a very complicated sort of setup. And um, finally they, they acquiesced and gave us two days. And um, you she know, said on stage that she thought it was going to be three hours. She thought it was going to be three hours. And it was literally one of those things, and she's, very, she's, she's not rude. I don't want this to come off as rude, but she sit down and is like, what do you want to know? And the first thing I asked her was, I was like, Jane, so let me ask you, um, you've told your story so many times before. Do, do you ever get tired of, of telling it? Which, for documentary filmmakers, that was a completely preconceived idea to open the film with. You know, open the film with her talking about, because we all know she's told the story so many times, acknowledging it, it's sort of a bit postmodern, if you will. And, uh, and so I go, I go uh, so, so do you get tired of telling your story? And she, she said, very straight-faced, well, it depends on the interviewer. <laughs> and I was like, touche. <laughs> and, and she was... Had you, what else had you done to prepare for that? I mean, I, I assume you'd read her uh, books. Had you talked to anyone who knew her? Did, had, had you like, developed a psychological profile of her to, to come in with a strategy yes. about yeah. how to approach this? Yeah, I think the, the one thing um, with my film, with archival films, a little side story about Chicago 10, Tom Hayden called me up one day when he knew I was making the film and was- He's so, one of the subjects of one Chicago One of the subjects 10, of Chicago 10. Of the, uh, you kind of key- The quietest guy in the courtroom. 
I'm, not to take anything away from Tom as, a, as an amazing, one of the greatest social activists of the last 50 years and who passed away recently. But Tom called me up and goes, I don't get it. Why, haven't you, why aren't you sitting down with me to go through stuff? And I, I was like, well, Tom, unless you have an encyclopedic knowledge of the 1,400 hours of film I have, it's not going to help me because I'm movie, my, my movie is made of this archival footage. And so that's how I learned the subject. And I read everything I can. I've read all your books, Tom. So I, I have that as, as background. And it becomes this sort of... Um, I think there's a certain truth to that. And in fact, I remember on Chicago 10 as well, some yippies getting really mad at me when they saw the film saying, the first night in Chicago was totally peaceful. And you made it seem like a riot. And I was like, <laughs> we could look at the camera slates. And you know, memory has a way of, of being quite slippery. And so I tend to trust the footage. Um, and with Jane, I had read all of her books and I had seen all the footage, so I didn't really have any need to, to talk to her before I started making the film. Um, I had books on tapes to draw from, I had just a wealth of material. So, as I do in all my movies, I cut the film before I did the interview. Mm -hmm. um, I, we did the same thing on Montage of Hack, and we do it for a very specific reason. If you can cut a film before you layer in your interviews, you are absolutely never gonna have a film in which the visuals become slavish or like our filler for something. Your film, first and foremost, will speak to us visually. And, um, and then you can start to take it back as you put in the in interviews. Um, the other reason is... And I'm curious, when you were doing that, were you slating in any like slugs. scratch narration, yeah. like reading from her book or something, just to kind of have some ideas about... Um, so on the kids season, the picture, I was, uh, when we were off doing the offline on that, I learned how to do a pretty good bob. Um, so uh, top, we could, uh, uh, I don't know what this conversation is about, but. So it worked very well, and I could actually go from Bob's voice to my voice as I was scratching out track, sort of fluidly. My jingle is not so great. So like, you, could, you could sort of throw in slug tech. I remember one time we tried to bring in this actor to just slug some lines for us. And <laughs> it was just, it took you right out of everything. So um, we put up cards that say um, what the line would be. Okay. Um, and then we started slugging in stuff from the book on tape. Uh, but one of the other reasons I was telling you this the other day that we do the interview after the fact is I light the interviews so that the... Um, the lighting is specific and reflective to what they're talking about. So the lighting changes throughout. If you've seen Montage of Hack, in the film, there's five interviews, and the whole film, the first interview, all the interviews begin in daylight and then drop into night. And it's an it's a effect I stole from the movie Lenny. Um, and it's a, it's a, the intended effect is that it feels like you're sitting around a campfire and people are just pouring it out. And also montage, all of the um, interviews were on, sound, on sets. Um, so, which is something I don't think people realize or they're not supposed to realize, but, and that was because in, the, in, in so many times when you go to interview someone, they say, well, I'm gonna be at this hotel room. Right. And I feel as a filmmaker, we have such limited tools to communicate our visions, hmm. particularly in archival filmmaking. A director's toolkit as an archival filmmaker is color grading, montage, 
sound design. That's it. That's the only way we could sort of get our voice in there. Mm. When you add interviews, now you open up this whole world of possibilities. And I always um, have a knee-jerk reaction when I feel like the background isn't in service to the subject, that I feel too often people underutilize the medium in terms of that is our time to talk. That is, especially in the archive sense, this is our moment hmm. to sort of make. So, and the only way you can really have conscious construction of to lighting and that stuff is if you already know where the interview is going to go. Obviously, keeping your ears open for new possibilities, but taking them on that In the case of Jane Goodall, you've, you've got a pretty good roadmap about where the interview is going to go. They, I, Exactly, Tom. I had the map, and at the very least, if we were going to go off in an area, I would keep it specific to the time of the, her life that we were talking about, so it would match the, the So to go back to this moment where Jane Goodall says, it depends on mm -hmm. the interviewer, I feel like you, know, you have some split-second decisions to make about how you're going to come across. Are you going to be aggressive? Are you going to be gentle? Are you, you know, what tone are you going to adopt? Hard. Hard. Hard? Is that I the think word? so. <laughs> I, think, I think I was like, all right, if we're going to play this way, then. Um, but, you know, the thing ultimately becomes when you're interviewing someone older, one of, the, um, one of the keys is, I think, to find ways to jog their memory. And um, Jane can talk all day long about chimpanzees and Gombe, but my film is not about the chimpanzees. It, I wanted to call the film Observed because it's not... You think it's going to be Jane observing the chimpanzees, but really, it's, we're observing Jane throughout the film. So after the first day of interviews, I realized that Hugo, it was really becoming problematic with her talking about Hugo because it had been many years since she had gone back to that space. Right. And so I love that, that Frost-Nixon movie, how, you, you know, after the first round, you go back and you sort of like, okay, what can I do differently tomorrow? And you go back right. in. And uh, I think when I came back the next day, I told Ellen Kiris, our cinematographer, who was you know, moving the lights forward as if we're moving forward in the days, I was like, I'm really sorry, we're gonna have to begin with, with morning light from yesterday because I need to mine back some Hugo stuff. And I went and I showed Jane the sequence of the film that was cut where her and Hugo fall in love. But you'd cut, cut out of archival uh, That we'd already this, cut, yeah. yeah, that had three minutes of footage that she'd never seen. And you, you, know, you could just see it. You could see it happening to her. And then she sort of was much warmer and looser. And, hmm. and you know, the thing is, you, as a director directing an interview, if someone is not, it's, I, I find it no different than directing fiction, hmm. in that if, they're, if they give me an answer and it's not the way that I know it needs to be heard in the, in the film, I'm gonna keep going there. I may say, okay, I'm gonna come back on that one. Hmm. But I'm going to try to, and even if I have to explain to them emotionally what I'm trying to achieve, mm. you know, as long as the words are theirs and not mine, it's, a, you know, and, and, and listen, sometimes you get people who are, who are you know, I mean, I, I get tongue-tied in front of a camera as well, so it's, you know. It happens to the best of them. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about the sound design and the, the score. Uh, can you talk about the decisions that you made in that respect, particularly hiring Philip Glass? Sure. When I started the project, the idea was to create this completely immersive experience in which through sound design 
and I didn't know how much Jane's narration I would need. We ended up requiring more than I initially thought. So therefore, I was gonna need a hook. I don't mean a marketing hook, but a, you know, something to hold it all together. And my movies tend to be slightly operatic, or they're, in fact, the kids' in the picture literally opens with the sound of an orchestra tuning up under the USA Films logo. And then you hear a and then the red curtains show up, and they part, and the orchestra kicks in. I mean, it was, and then the last note of the movie is that it swells up to that. So it's an area that I'm very comfortable in, I enjoy working in. Um, this was very much intended to be a cinematic opera. And there were really only two people that uh, came to mind, Brian Eno, because of For All Mankind, um, which is probably the film that had the biggest influence on the type of movies I wanted to make. Um, Which maybe you should say for a word about what so, For All Mankind sorry, is. For All Mankind, if you haven't seen it, it's a, there's a Criterion edition of it. It won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 1989. It's a movie that's made up entirely of NASA uh, stock footage. And what the filmmaker did was basically take all of the NASA missions and sort of all the Apollo missions and sort of make them one. So you're not having to back up and go forward. So it's like, you, know, you see all the guys training, then you see it going up in the ship, they go to the moon, they come back. And it's voiceover from, off-camera voiceover from various astronauts with a beautiful Brian Eno score. So Eno doesn't, um, doesn't score the picture. And I knew that would not work. Our film was going to be too narratively driven. Yeah. Ever since I saw the movie Mishima, I've wanted to work with John Bailey and um, Philip Glass. And I got to work with Bailey on The Kid Stays in the Picture. And this, you know, we had the budget for him. And it just seemed like he would add, he's, to, him, to me, Jane Goodall and Philip Glass are the same. Just huge titans in their field, both in their early 80s. There is a symmetry to that, that I just wholeheartedly embrace. Mm -hmm. Philip was almost entirely unaware of Jane's work and her research. Mm -hmm. um, but what... And I he can't did, imagine that he's like an easy guy to book. He, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we delayed our film in part because of him, mm -hmm. because he, he had some scheduling. So, so. Uh, like, what did it take to win him over to the project? Well, I wasn't going to send a montage of Hack. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that would go over well. <laughs> and, I, 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 and so it, well, he, well, he didn't know my work. Mm -hmm. and, um, but what I did was I sent him an early cut 
uh, sequence that we had done um, with some of his temp on it. And he fell in love with Hugo cinematography initially. When he sent me his first five cues, he had fallen in love with Jane. My big concern with Philip, and it probably was more not my concern, but um, other producers and people in production, was um, Philip's music tends to be a little, can be cold, mm. and we needed a very warm emotional score, mm. and so we sort of rolled the dice, and like I said, Philip clearly... I feel like he really delivered in, in that respect. He really so. delivered. Yeah. Now, uh, what do you do when you get a Philip Glass track and it's like not quite working for you? Like, how, how's that <laughs> phone call? Like, Philip, I don't know how you tell you this, but uh, it's just not working for me. Oh, it, it starts off very gently. <laughs> and about two months in, it is very abrasive. <laughs> because, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely right, Tom. I, I, didn't, I never went to music school. And I learned on um, the first time I was working with the composer what a terrible disadvantage it is to be a director and not know how to speak their language. Because then you literally end up humming. And I, don't, I can't go in key either. Yeah. So I remember on the ropes, we'd sit there with Teddy and be like, can you do like, mm? He'd be like, I, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and for the last 15 years, I worked with Jeff Dana on all my films, and we have a shorthand. So I was really, <laughs> I remember working when he was coming into LA for our first spotting session, thinking, oh my God, how am I going to do this? And, um, but it's your film. I know my film pretty well, and he's coming into, he, he's coming into my house. So, he, you know, there may have been that first time I was, um, <laughs> actually, this is what happened. This is actually hysterical. I just remember this song. The first five cues he sent me were freaking amazing, and I called him up. It was a total love fest, and I'm like, Philip, oh my God, this is the greatest. I'm so happy. I've listened to it over and over and over. Da, da, da. And he was like, well, uh, you know, you could, uh, it's all right, you know, you could tell me things you don't like about the stuff. Um, I go, no, Phil, trust me, we'll have a time where that comes up. And I think on that first call, he just thought I was going to be like this for the whole film. And then we get the next batch of cues, and we ended up rejecting cue 6 to 31. And so it never, it was just, it ended up getting rough. And, um, you know, I think Philip thought it was going to be a two-month process and turned into a six-month process. Mm. Um, but it was really important that, like, you can't, it, music plays such a big role in this film that we had to... Are Q6 through 31 laying around somewhere? Because there's probably some filmmakers who'd be happy to uh, take those... <laughs> Can I tell you a funny story he told me, though? He told me when he works with Errol... <laughs> Errol Morris. Yes, Errol Morris. That Errol will reject every track he comes that he sends him. And Philip said he thinks he does it so he gets a fucking collection of uh, temp track. I would be surprised. Errol's, you know crafty guy. Um, you know, once you came round to doing this project. Um, how do you feel like this film fits into your body of work? And, and, and do you think about uh, that? I, I have mm -hmm. a feeling that you probably do think about that. I don't think of things in the sort of auteur sense of thematics, like, but I, I could probably write the best auteur study of my own work because now 
having being having made enough films to look back, I, I now know what the themes that I didn't realize I was drawn to that I've always been drawn to are. They're becoming crystallized. Um, well, let's let's explicate that. It's, I'm not ready to go public with that. Yet. Okay, <laughs> this is too painful for me. The um, but the the um, look I, I, at this point in my career, I look for subjects that have a sort of um, that have a sort of built an audience and. What are, what, how can I approach this film? What can I do to make this film a challenge for myself and unique? I don't want to make the kids' days in the picture again. The one common link that I now can see with all my films is I, I always wanted to be the filmmaker who every film was 180 degrees. I consciously set out in my film career to be the guy that goes, every film is going to be totally different. And so like Tom said, the first, the first one was On the Ropes, which is like cinema verite shot like fiction. And then the second one was the kids' days in the picture was all photo animation. And then the third one, I'm like, all right, we're going to do motion capture on this one and combine that with, with um, archives. And then June 17th, this one I did for the, um, I don't know if anyone saw that for 30 for 30, which is Day of the O.J. Bronco Chase, was the only 30 for 30 ever made with no narration, no interviews. It's a 60-minute montage. So, um, so I, each one had its own challenge. But then I realized that ultimately they are all the same film because what I'm doing with each film is telling a story about the past but presenting it in the present tense. Hmm. So, which is, if you think about it, very different from how, what, as a genre, things were prior to 2000. To me, documentaries growing up were people who were still alive testifying right. about things that happened. Now, I think some of this has to do with the advent of cinema, to technologies that are accessible to my generation of filmmaking. Part of it may be that I may be of the first generation of documentary filmmakers who came at it entirely from dominant cinema, um, who spent his entire childhood, teenage years, studying you know, Hollywood films, went to college for it, and then decided to take all that and apply it to nonfiction. Um, but, that was the thing with like the kid, and even with On the Ropes, it was like we had to be present for everything or figure out a visual way to make it happen. And what we learned on On the Ropes, which is a cinema verite trick everyone knows, is like um, you can't cast characters at the beginning of act one. You have to cast them at the end of act one because you don't know if anything's gonna happen to them if it's the beginning of act one. So in On the Ropes, which we did a couple years ago, your thing, it's about a trainer and three boxers and very dramatic narrative arcs with all of them. The female boxer, Tyreen, dreams of escaping the house she shares with a crack-addicted relative. When I come out this house, they're going to say, Tyreen Manson, that young lady, you know, the one that boxed? Remember she used to train years ago? See her running around in the street, training hard? Yo, she got the belt. She got the belt. She really made it. She the first one that came out that house and made, made something of her life. And that's what I want. But when we found them, Tyreen had already been busted. Um, like George and Harry's relationship was falling apart. And we already knew, but then we knew that it would be, oh, it'd be so easy to show George and Harry's relationship part one by just filming them at the gym and not having any conflict. Mm-hmm. Boom. <laughs> okay, now we, now we can just pick up, you know right. what I mean? So that's always been a thing for Nanette as well, is, is trying to tell these stories in the present tense. It, it, with the kid, it had to be because of Bob's narration. With Jane, that, was, that carries through with that tradition. 
of, of inviting the audience to sort of be Jane and go on this journey. Um, and what, you know, so, something that strikes me about Jane is that even though we are seeing her on camera telling her story in her 80s, you feel the, the experience of watching the film is you feel like you're watching her in the jungle in her 20s. And, you know, I've, you know, sometimes filmmakers make choices. You have a film here about Eric Clapton where the filmmaker made a choice. She, the director, is not going to show Eric Clapton as present day talking about himself. We're just hearing that over the track without showing him on camera uh, so that we can be in the Eric Clapton of his 20 self. That goes back to the kid's stage of the picture. That was the sole reason we decided to do the kid with Bob off camera because it was a movie about seduction and it was a movie about imagery. So we needed the audience in the kid's stage of the picture to see Bob the way that his contemporary saw him when he was 20, 25, 30, 35, 40. And that was always been my thing with nonfiction, is especially with the Stones. I didn't want to see Mick and all those guys at 70. I wanted to just be in the footage with them. Yeah. And because that's how the world viewed them. Because anyone who's like 20, looking at this film about a 75-year-old talking about how cool he was is going to be, what are you talking about? Andrew wanted to make the Rolling Stones the anti-Beatles. So if you've got heroes, you've got an anti-hero. Like in a movie, you've got good guys and bad guys. Andrew decided that the Rolling Stones were the bad guys. It wasn't just an accident. He thought the Rolling Stones would suit that image. It helps to have people that go along with it or will fit the bill. It's good to have an actor that will play the part. The reason I really hate talking heads more than anything is that they're taking up space. They're not very kinetic. And I'd rather, unless, you, unless there's a reason to put them on screen, unless there's something you're telling me about the way they're emoting, or there's something in the visual association, then why am I looking at this? It's generally just seeing a head move is not the most exhilarating thing in the world. So given the choice between, also in a film like Crossfire Hurricane, cutting to you know, Charlie Watts or Bill Wyman talking, no disrespect to those gentlemen, or seeing kinetic, raw footage, I'm going with the footage. Yeah. Um, the reason with Jane, uh, I decided to sort of um, put her on camera is, well, twofold. The entire movie is not about her looking back in her life because the bulk of the narration was recorded when she was in her late 40s for um, a book on tape called um, Reason for Hope. We had the extreme pleasure with this film, which you will, no one will ever have this again, of being able to use Jane's voice from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and into 80s, because she's told her story so many times. And but it's kind of seamless. Lots of people's voices change as they get older. I feel like hers hasn't, or, or you, maybe you've done something uh, in your sound treatment if, to, to get around that. If you watch it again, it's very clearly delineated when it's her modern-day interview from this more omniscient narration. Okay. And, and someone asked me the other day about almost the ethics of that. And I said, you know, here's the thing. I'm always trying to use my subject's art and their words and their voice and as much of them, their DNA in my films as possible because my films are meant to not be the history of these subjects, but a sort of cinematic Jumanji, you know, like a, a sort of um, the personification of the subjects. 
I just want to give people like a, a taste of them, a flavor of them that, yeah. in a way that's uniquely cinematic that you couldn't get in a book. So with her, with her writing, you know, Tom, if I ask you to say, um, so tell me about your first walking to college for the first time. And we're doing an interview. I didn't go to college. <laughs> yeah. Now, you come up with something. Now, if I say to you, Tom, write me uh, a, a, you know, a, a, a couple paragraphs about your first days in college and then recite them back, it's probably going to be a little more lyrical. And what I noticed was Jane doing her own, these are her words in her narration, in her oration, and it was far more pure than anything I was going to be able to extract from her 35 years later. Um, especially with her musings, well, like the scene we just saw was from Reason for Hope, I believe. The huge gnarled and ancient trees, the little streams chuckling their way through rocky pathways to the lake, the birds, the insects, Since I was eight or nine years old, I had dreamed of being in Africa, of living in the bush among wild animals. And suddenly, I found I was actually living in my dream. I already felt that I belonged to this new forest world, that this was where I was meant to be. And it's her doing that spiritual thing, you know, the, the rolling freaks. She would never, what question in an interview gets you that answer, right? Like, I don't know how to do that. So, so yeah. So let me, so final question, because we've got just a couple minutes. Something I started before to ask you about, where do you think Jane fits into your body of work? Um, I think one of the fun things about getting older as a filmmaker and having, can, being able to continue to have opportunities to, to make films is that it's like love. You know, love is different at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. What I'm interested in now is not necessarily what I would have been interested in 10 years ago or even had the awareness to do. Like, Montage of Hack, I had to go through some serious shit in my own before I could come out the other side in a, in a place to tell that story. And with Jane, I was desperate. that Making Kurt wasn't the dark part. Promoting Kurt was the dark part. That, that was devastating for me, going out for six months on the road with that film. And, um, and I needed to do something that was lighter. Mm. And I also wanted this challenge. I'm like, why do I keep Not making... Not less serious, but, but, but more hopeful than... Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, 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 I, and I was like, why do I keep making films about these kind of degenerate, older, a lot of drugs and men, and why, why, it wasn't a conscious choice, but like, I want, I'm, you know, I wanted to try something a little different, and I think I probably made the darkest Jane Goodall film one could make, like, if that's possible, um, because I definitely wasn't coming at it from like, oh, Jane worship, I mean, listen, Jane is fallible. Even with her work with chimpanzees, she's fallible. In life, to some of the decisions she made, everybody here would have a different take on it. Um, and so, but that is why I think the film works so much better than people anticipated it. Because even I would anticipate, I'm not going to go see the Jane Goodall doc. Yeah. If you ask me to go see a Jane Goodall doc, I go, A, haven't I seen that at some point? 
B, how saccharine can you be? And like, no. Like, I'm just, <laughs> no interest whatsoever in going to a jig. And you would say, Brett, it's really good. Trust me. I, no, Tom, I'm not going to go see the Jane Goodall doc. All right, so you've spelled out your marketing dilemma <laughs> yeah. for this film. Yeah. But that happened with the Rolling Stones, too, where they were like, and I'm like, who's going to go, like, that seems like that's Best Buy presents the Rolling Stones 50th anniversary. It seems so cheesy. <laughs> and that was what actually... When I told Mick I would take the job, that's what I told him. I said, the reason I'm doing this is because I wouldn't see this myself. Like, I know that sounds really weird, but I figured that people's expectations would be so low because they'd all be like me going, the Rolling Stones are making a 50th anniversary film that for Best Buy, that's gonna be the dumbest thing ever. And then like, oh shit, it's kind of cool. And um, I, I see in your future, Barney, the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank Brett Morgan for speaking with me. Jane is now playing in theaters and was selected for the Doc NYC shortlist. We hope you'll join us at Doc NYC for eight days of films and panels running from November 9th to 16th. Even if you won't be in New York, you can follow what's happening on the festival website, docnyc.net. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo. Sound mixer, Tom Micah. Web designer, Cross Strategy. And social media master, Jordan Smith. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams. And our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.